Welcome to Condensed Matter, condensing recent work in metaphysics and the philosophy of science down to what matters. I'm your host, Sam Kinton Knight. This episode is kind of a two-for-one. I'll be discussing an exchange between Alexander Bird and Barbara Vetter that takes the form of two articles, one by each author, published in the Proceedings of the Aristotelian Society in 2018. The first article is Alexander Bird's Fundamental Powers, Evolved Powers and Mental Powers. Things have properties. Apples are red, electrons are charged, black holes have mass, and so on. Philosophers have appealed to properties to explain the respects in which things are similar to other things. Apples and roses are similar in that they're both red, they both have the property redness. Bowling balls and black holes are similar in that they both have mass. Some philosophers have suggested that properties can do even more explanatory work. According to the powers theorists, properties also explain what things do. Black holes and bowling balls exert a gravitational force because they have mass and thus tend to accelerate towards other objects that have mass. Mass, according to these philosophers, is a power because it disposes or empowers its bearers to exert a gravitational force, and hence to accelerate towards other massive objects. Alexander Byrd is a a prominent proponent of this view of properties as powers, but he disagrees with other powers theorists about exactly which properties are powers. While some powers theorists say that all properties are powers, Bird argues that fundamental properties are powers and only some non-fundamental or macro properties are powers. The point of this paper is to say which macro properties get to count as powers. To understand Bird's arguments, it will help to say a bit more about what exactly he thinks powers are. So as we've said already, powers are properties. But furthermore, powers, according to Bird, have essences, but not just any essences, Their essences concern the dispositions that they confer upon their bearers. Mass is a power because it's of the essence of the property mass that it disposes its bearers to exert a gravitational force. From this claim about the essence of mass, it follows that it is necessary that if some object has the property mass, then it is disposed to exert a gravitational force. If a property did not dispose its bearers to exert a gravitational force, then that property would not be mass. Some philosophers deny this. They say that mass could be associated with any other dispositions we could imagine. Why think that properties are powers? According to Bird, there are two broad reasons. First, understanding properties as powers yields a nice account of property identity. We can say that what it is to be mass just is to be a property that disposes its bearers to exert a gravitational force, since this is the essence of the property. Second, powers can explain the laws of nature. Powerful properties can explain why individuals with those properties engage in regular behaviours as articulated in our statements of scientific laws. And since powers necessarily dispose their bearers in the ways that they do, it turns out that the laws of nature are necessary, which is in accordance with our experience of laws of nature, which, unlike legislative laws, would seem to be truly unbreakable. While arguments from property identity and laws of nature count in favour of fundamental powers, Bird argues that they do not support the existence of macro powers. Macro properties, such as sphericity, the property of being a sphere, can typically have their essences, and hence their identities, specified independently of how they dispose their bearers. 
To be a sphere is to have a surface, all points on which are equidistant from a given point. There's no need to give the essence or identity of sphericity in terms of any dispositions, so sphericity is not a power according to Bird. Neither are macro properties required to explain the laws of nature. While there may be higher level laws of chemistry and biology, for example, Bird argues that these are ultimately explained by the fundamental powers, so there is no need to posit macro powers to explain them. Furthermore, according to Bird, arguments for macro powers that can be found in the literature fail because the explanatory features to which they appeal are not distinctive of powers per se. One can explain higher level phenomena such as causation and meaning in terms of properties, but it is not necessary that the properties invoked have their essences constituted by dispositions in order for the explanations to work. However, Bird does think that there are some good candidates for macro powers. In particular, Bird argues that evolved functional properties in biology are macro powers. The example Bird considers is sightedness, the property of having sight. Sightedness is selected for, being sighted confers an evolutionary advantage on animals, so the presence of sightedness can be given an evolutionary explanation, as well as being explainable in evolutionary terms. Sightedness is itself explanatory of other phenomena. Sightedness explains how animals find what they need in their environment, and it can explain the appearance of animals that camouflage, such as the stick insect. If the stick insect's predators did not hunt via sight, the stick insect's appearance would not have been selected for in its evolutionary history. The explanatory role of sightedness is good evidence that it is a real property in the world, as opposed to a mere linguistic entity. Why not reduce sightedness to whatever fundamental properties realise this function? Well, for one thing, sightedness is realised by different properties in different instances. Human sightedness does not come about in the same way that octopus sightedness does. What's more, sightedness features in explanations that cannot be given in terms of whatever fundamental properties realise sightedness in a given case. Evolution by natural selection can explain the presence of sightedness in an animal, but not the particular realiser of sightedness because this varies and the scientific explanations yielded by appeal to sightedness, i.e. of the behaviour and visual features of certain animals, cannot be replaced by explanations just in terms of the more fundamental properties that realise sightedness. This suggests that sightedness cannot be eliminated via reduction to whatever fundamental properties realise it. Finally, Bird argues that the essence of sightedness can only be given in terms of how it disposes its bearers, its essence is not anything to do with the fundamental properties that realise it, for example, because it has different fundamental realisers in different instances. Sightedness, then, is a real property whose essence is given by how it disposes its bearers. Hence, sightedness is a power, according to Bird. Sightedness is just an example to illustrate the broader point. Any evolved, functional, non-fundamental property will be a macro power, according to Bird. Bird then extends his argument for macro powers to apply to mental states and capacities. The argument is premised on a version of functionalism about mental states and capacities, according to which functions are understood teleologically, that is, in terms of their end goals. In this sense, then, while the heart both pumps blood and makes a beating noise, only the former, the pumping blood, is to be understood as a function of the heart. The heart's goal is to pump blood, not to make a beating noise. Similarly, it's part of the function of beliefs that beliefs guide actions, but not that beliefs are strengthened by confirmation bias. The latter is just a byproduct of belief, not its function. Understanding mental states in this way, as teleological functions, avoids certain problems for traditional functionalism about mental states. But crucially, it allows Bird to apply to mental states the same arguments that were applied to sightedness, and thus conclude that mental states too are macro powers. To summarise, evolved functional properties and mental states satisfy three conditions. They are non-fundamental, 
They are real properties that exist in the world independently of our thought or language, and their essences are given by the dispositions that they confer upon their bearers. So, according to Bird, evolved functional properties and mental states are macro powers. Barbara Vetter responds to Bird in her paper Evolved Powers, Artifact Powers and Dispositional Explanations, which I'll move on to now. Recall that a power is a property whose essence is constituted by the dispositions that it confers upon its bearers. We just discussed Alexander Bird's argument for a limited range of non-fundamental or macro powers. According to Bird, evolved functional properties such as sightedness satisfy three conditions which means that they get to count as macro powers. Properties such as sightedness are non-fundamental, after all they're biological properties, not properties of fundamental physics. They are real properties that exist in the world independently of our thought or language. The evidence for this is that their existence is explained in evolutionary scientific terms, and they also explain other phenomena of scientific interest, such as the appearance and behaviour of animals. And finally, since these properties can be realised in a variety of different ways, for example, octopus sight and human sight have different microphysical realisers, and it is the dispositional properties themselves, not the micro-realisers in any given instance, that are explanatory, we have good reason to believe that the essences of these properties are given by the dispositions that they confer, not their realiser properties, so they are essentially dispositional. Barbara Vetter argues that Bird's argument for macro powers generates way more powers than was intended, and hence that his arguments fail to distinguish his position from that of the immodest powers theorists of whom he is so critical. Let's think about evolution by natural selection. Many of the properties that animals possess were selected for because their function confers an evolutionary advantage, sightedness being one such example. Another example Vetter considers is the ability to wiggle one's ears at will. In cats, this property confers an evolutionary advantage. It helps cats to track prey. We can explain cats' ability to wiggle their ears in evolutionary terms. It was selected for its function of helping cats to hunt. And we can explain how cats hunt with reference to this property. They use the ability to wiggle their ears to track down prey. But some humans can wiggle their ears at will too. In humans, however, this property performs no function, so its presence cannot be explained by evolution and it cannot be used to explain human behaviour. The ability to wiggle one's ears at will plays no explanatory role in humans. A crucial part of Bird's argument is that properties are real if they play an explanatory role. The ability to wiggle one's ears plays an explanatory role in cats, it's explained by evolution, and it explains the cat's hunting success. What's more, the ability to wiggle one's ears is plausibly an essentially dispositional property. It's the disposition or ability to wiggle one's ears that is explanatory, not whatever microphysical properties realise this disposition. So Bird seems compelled to count the ability to wiggle one's ears as a macro power. However, in humans, the ability to wiggle one's ears is not explanatory. Its presence in humans is neither explained in terms of evolution, nor is it explanatory of human behaviour. But since we don't want to say that one and the same property is real and a power in one case, or in one instance, but not the other, we are forced to say that the ability to wiggle one's ears is just a real power, whether it's instantiated in cats or in humans. What if cats hadn't existed? Surely it's possible that cats didn't ever evolve and so didn't exist. But we don't want to say that the existence of a power, in this case the ability to wiggle one's ears, depends on the contingent existence of some species or other. So we are forced to conclude that the ability to wiggle one's ears would still have been a power even if cats did not exist and it were only instantiated in humans, even though it performs no function in humans. What follows then 
is that any property that even could have been selected for by evolution to play some function is real and a power. But this is not the end of the story. Dispositional properties of artefacts would seem to be able to satisfy the criteria for being a macro power too. Consider the ability to support a sitting adult human. This is a dispositional property had by chairs. What's more, it explains the existence of chairs. Chairs are brought into existence for their ability to support sitting adult humans. This explanatory role of the disposition to support sitting adult humans suggests that it is a real property. What's more, the property is multiply realizable by a bench, an armchair, or a beanbag, etc. So we can say that the property is not reducible to its specific realizer properties, and hence that it is essentially dispositional. The ability to support a sitting adult human is thus a macro power according to Bird's criteria. But the ability to support a sitting human adult is also a property possessed by certain rocks that were not crafted by humans to perform any function. As before, however, since we don't want to say that one and the same property, in this case the ability to support a sitting adult human, is a power in one instance but not in another, we're forced to say that the rock has this power too. But what if humans had never existed to create chairs? Since we don't want to say that the existence of a power depends on such contingencies as whether or not humans existed and were interested in making chairs, we must say that even in the absence of chairs and humans, the ability to support a sitting adult human possessed by a rock is a power. In general then, any functional property that even could have been the object of intentional design will end up counting as a power. And since it seems that there are few limits to which properties could have been the object of intentional design, Bird's criteria yields a plethora of macro powers, which is anathema to his modest aims. How damaging is Vetter's critique of Bird? Well, it's important to understand this exchange in the wider context of anti-Humeanism. Both Bird and Vetter consider themselves anti-Humeans in the broad sense that they admit irreducible modality and necessary connections in the world. To believe in powers, as Bird and Vetter both do, is, roughly speaking, to believe that properties are irreducibly modal and to believe that there are necessary connections between the properties that individuals instantiate and the ways in which those individuals are disposed. Hence, powers theorists often set themselves up in opposition to Humean metaphysicians. According to the Humeans, there is no irreducible modality, nor are there any necessary connections in the world. Again, roughly speaking, all modality is to be reduced to non-modal matters of fact, according to the Humeans. Vetter doesn't think that her critique need be a threat to anti-Humeanism per se, but she does think that it motivates a more careful articulation of what is characteristic of the anti-Humean worldview. Bird construes his anti-Humeanism in terms of a commitment to the existence of powers, but what Vetter exposes is that, on Bird's conception of powers, the existence of powers comes very cheaply indeed, which renders the view quite unremarkable and indeed amenable to Bird's opponents. Vetter thus argues that instead of understanding anti-Humeanism in terms of a commitment to the existence of powers, in Bird's sense, anti-Humeanism should be understood in terms of what metaphysically explains what. More precisely, Vetter suggests that anti-Humeans should maintain that explanations in terms of dispositions cannot be reduced to explanations that do not appeal to dispositions. Dispositions are vital explainers of modal phenomena, such as laws of nature and possibility and necessity. This is something that the Humeans would disagree with, because they think that dispositions are ultimately to be reduced to non-dispositional, non-modal matters of fact. 
So Vetter's critique may prove very damaging to Bird's particular formulation of anti-humanism, but not to his broader anti-human project in general. 